Have you ever wanted to chat with a CIA analyst about how to spot propaganda campaigns or maybe learn what it is like to be a real-life private investigator? I want you to check out Jordan Harbinger's podcast. He has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-been-heard-before stories and thought-provoking insights. Check out Jordan's conversations with Thomas Erickson about how to protect yourself from psychopaths or his chat with Renee DiResta on dismantling the disinformation machine without fail. He pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with a noble cause to make you a more informed, critical thinker to better operate in today's world. There is so much here. There's just so much here. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It is incredibly interesting. There is never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome. It is hard to believe that we are now in week six of the Alec Murdoch murder trial, but here we are. The defense is expected to rest its case this week, then there will be a few rebuttal witnesses from the state before closing arguments begin. But we are almost at the finish line. After the last two days of Ellick's testimony last week, I don't think I'm alone when I say I'm looking forward to the day the jury comes back with its verdict. It's been a long road to justice so far. On Friday evening, Liz, Eric, and I sat down for our usual post-trial conversation, shortly after Creighton Waters' mic drop moment with Ellick, when he showed the jury that Ellick's story about being paranoid because of SLED was, shocker, another lie. You might notice we sound a little dazed at the beginning. We were clearly all still processing what the heck just happened. But that's no surprise. Last week was the most dramatic week of the trial that we've seen so far. There's so much to unpack, so let's get into it. Cups up, Mandy. Cups up. Cups up, Liz and Mandy. This has been a very long week, and uh, today was the finale of my least favorite show, The Alec Murdoch Hour. Uh, how are you guys feeling? Exhausted. I feel like I need to take a bath, uh, a bath and something that can scrub me uh, clean because I feel filthy, yucky. And it was only a four-day four trial week, believe it or not, but it, it certainly felt like two weeks with no break. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, the last two days have felt like 
years, um, like I was trying to sit here thinking of what happened before Alex took the stand. And I think that that's probably going to happen with the jury of like, it's hard to remember anything else besides that. And it's hard to focus on anything else besides that because that was just so intense and crazy. Yeah, I think the uh, I think we don't want to forget that the, the the defense had some really bad experts to come on early. You know, they had the doctor or the assistant pathologist that should be on Green Acres instead of uh, an assistant pathology coroner for Collin County, and then. Mr. Sutton played all five positions on the offensive line. I mean, he was an expert du jour on every subject. And then when he left, he told us how to cook lasagna. I mean, they were bad. The the the, the final guy that they had was pretty good about an accident scene, the elderly gentleman. Um, but of course he wasn't given all of the information or documents. So the the murderer's row that we were expecting from the defense, I don't think we've seen um, up until Alex. And uh, Alex, you know, started with a bang, but certainly ended with a whimper. I hope that's true, Eric. I hope that's true. Yeah. I mean, the a lot of people I've been, especially lawyers who I've been texting, have been surprised at with as expensive as we anticipated this defense team to cost. Eric, did you think they went a little cheap on witnesses? so far oh yeah they 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 drafted mr sutton who was in the boating case and they made him into a decibel expert uh, a phone tossing expert um a bullet trajectory expert um the spread of bullets and the spread of shotgun shells and i think there was one other subject that he he touched on um I think that they're not going to call every expert. I, I, I fully anticipated that they had blood experts and GSR experts and DNA experts. But as Liz and I talked about this week, it was a Trojan horse trial where good on Creighton for misleading Dick for five months, thinking that it was going to be a scientific trial. And this trial has turned out to be a technology trial and a lie trial. Technology on phone, on, on the OnStar as well as on videos and Snapchat. And then the main the main um, piece of evidence has been Alex lie about the kennel. So Dick spent five months preparing for bevel and a bloody blue T-shirt and DNA, and it hasn't been anything. So I think they had a lot of these great experts, and they're realizing that they can't use them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I just want to say I told you so. To both of you, <laughs> because I feel like I'm the only woman in America who thought and knew in her heart that Alec Murdoch would get up on the in the stand. I knew that. I've said that this whole time. Uh, let me tell you, I'm 0 for 3. Guys, I'm 0 for 3. Uh, my memory is failing me then. I, I said that there wasn't going to be a trial in January. <laughs> right. I said that Buster wasn't going to testify. And I said Alex wasn't going to testify. So I'm out. <laughs> it's well like to everybody else it's just so why would he do that blah 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 um and I, it's just par for the course man like i have considered russell and alex to be very similar and nobody thought Al russell would testify and he stood on up there and scooted up to the chair and did the same odd lean over 
I like saw a lot of similarities. Plus, Ru- plus Russell TV. Yes. Um, I and I think if Alex had the opportunity, he would have Russell TV right now, but he's in jail. So I I mean I didn't know what to expect going into this, but what did you guys think uh the last two days? What have you learned in the last two days? Ladies before gentlemen, go Liz. I wanna say I wanna say this because I so first of all, I like the going back to the experts real quick. It felt a lot like 30 Rock uh, when Liz Lemon was dating the John Hamm character who is like so handsome and everyone thought he was so amazing at everything he did. He was a good doctor. He was a great tennis player. But it turns out he can't do anything because he's just his whole life been bolstered up by people complimenting him. So in many ways, like the defense has proven to be that. Like I have definitely, obviously I've seen some very smart maneuvers by them. They're definitely not afraid to ask for what they want, which is a life lesson for all of us. Uh, even though they know they're annoying everyone and hated. Uh, but that's that. I just want to say, like, you know, there's been a lot of moments over the last two days where it's just sort of been jaw-dropping and exhausting and, and all of that, but a lot of bombshells and, and such, you know, just like getting on the stand and suddenly changing everything. But to me, and it's still on my mind heavily because I think Mandy and I had fought this so hard and it, <laughs> Within the 14th circuit, like, you know, people are saying to us, like, oh, if he's not, you guys want him to be found guilty because X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, we just wanted to get it to this point because of how corrupt the 14th circuit is, because of what we see in South Carolina. And I think the whole world got to see that corruption in the presentation of the badges, the photo of Ellick in the hospital the night of the boat crash with his badge hanging out of his pocket in almost an obscene way. It was almost like he was flashing people with his genitals. Like, I mean, and not to be gross, but like, it's just, and he's just like, oh, that, that's just out there. Okay, Harvey Weinstein, like your badge, your badge is (laughs) covering out of your pants. (laughs) It turns out that this man was walking around as a deputy solicitor. Like that's the number two the number two guy. Oh, blue lights. Don't forget the blue lights. Yeah, with the blue lights. He has blue lights in his car. And the moment when Crane was like, for your five cases over 15 years, I want to remind listeners that when Mandy foyed the 14th Circus Solicitor's Office in the summer of 2021 for a list of cases that Alec prosecuted. They could name one. It was Emanuel Buckner. It wasn't until recently that we had to FOIA again for it. Suddenly they have this list of five people. And there's been plenty of people who have come to us after this saying, I actually remember him involved in X case. And I remember him involved in this case. This is the heart and soul of corruption that we were talking about from the beginning. And you guys got to see it. This man has been rolling around with two badges, getting whatever he wants, how is he using those in the civil cases? That's what I would like to know. So that's the stuff. That's the stuff that angers me. But don't forget, don't forget, Liz. It, there's a bigger, uh, a bigger thing that has taken place in this trial that no one's talked about, but you two have talked about, and that is Duffy Stone controlled this investigation from June of 2021 up until Labor Day. And the criticism by the defense is, oh, you got you guys didn't do this. You didn't go to Almeida or you should have done this. And after Alex interviewed you, you should have done this. Don't forget, SLED 
really didn't come on to control this investigation and Creighton Wooders with the statewide grand jury until the Labor Day shooting. So if you got a criticism on what was done on this investigation or not done on this investigation, go go call Duffy Stone on the phone. Now, I give Creighton credit because he's a prosecutor and he didn't want to shit down the throat of another prosecutor in this trial. But that's the big elephant in the room as I see it. What do you see about that, Mandy? But where's Alan Wilson in this? Like, shouldn't Alan Wilson have just taken control over at that point? Like, isn't he in charge of, isn't he the solicitor in charge of all the solicitors? Like, um, at what point he should have said, this is going to be my investigation anyways, and I want to make sure that it's perfect instead of, having all of these questions that Duffy Stone's office was involved in one way or another, and he should have said that that mucks up the case, that mucks up my investigation, get out of here. And if you don't get out of here, then, like, I mean, I would like to see Alan, Alan Wilson needs to be gravely concerned with what's going on in the 14th Circuit, but we've heard nothing no, he's always concerned about what happens outside of the state way more than what's happening inside the state. And that's been consistent from the beginning with this man. And I'm just going to say, too, have you seen anything more transgressive than two 14th Circuit solicitors sitting on the defense side? I presume they were sitting on the defense side by going to support police chief Greg Alexander in his public corruption case, which was held in Hampton County 10 years ago. Those two men in the 14th Circuit. So you have two prosecutors in the 14th Circuit who are sitting behind somebody who is being tried for public corruption, and they got to hold onto their badges for another 10 years. There was nothing these men could do, no wrong, nothing that Duffy Stone would stand up to, nothing that Alan Wilson will stand up to. It is disgusting. And I'm so riled up right now because I've been forced to listen to, and not forced, but chose to listen to a narcissist, a big giant red bear, try to dance with a little man with glasses for 48 hours now, it seems. And it's just, it's exhausting. Like, that, I get now. I And Alex also uh, said that uh, Greg Alexander was the guy that told him to hate sled, taught him to hate sled. Oh, and the sheriff, the sheriff yeah. of Colleton County. And that's great, too, because he is a... Freaking, he is a police chief. This right. He's supposed to work with sled. Like, small-town police chiefs, they, right. are, they usually don't investigate murders. They usually have to call sled for one way or another. And Yemisee's super small. So it's funny that, like, Alex just voluntarily word vomited all of that up. I know. About Greg Alexander as we're all just like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's so many moments where you're like, oh wait, wait, slow down. Like you're you're naming all the all the characters. I know. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to re-listen to like all of that this weekend because there was <sighs> just so much to consume. There was a lot of word vomit from from Alex. So it's a better word than two words than filibuster, but he did word vomit most of the time. Oh my god. So Mandy, do you think that that was a smart decision for the defense to put him up? No. I mean, we'll see what the jury decides, but no. Eric? Uh, no, uh, with a small N, not a capital N. There was really nothing to lose because he's going to get smoked on the financial crimes, whether he got up on the stand and admitted them. Um, we, we do know he's going to get smoked on those. So what was the downside? Um, not too much. However, a guy like that 
tries too hard. He tries to swing too hard. And he did pretty good on humanizing his drug addiction the best he could. He did pretty good in humanizing um, just the difficulties that he was experiencing in life. And Creighton had a, had a little bit of feet in mud or sand or whatever you want to say on the financial crimes. But when he got to the murder questions, man, did he step in bear traps after bear traps after bear traps. Will one of you just sort of go through the mic drop moment uh, after the cross? So for two days, we heard that the only time he decided that the paranoia from this drug addiction, alleged drug addiction, took over was when he felt he was being interrogated by SLED. When SLED came on board, David Owens came on board, and whether David Owens was doing it overtly or covertly, he had gotten enough advice from the law partners and from Danny Henderson and from his brothers. Everybody, he said, told me I shouldn't talk to the police, I, whatever. Aside from the fact that you want to cooperate when your wife and son is murdered, he got good advice because every husband who survives a spouse killing is going to be a target. So he kept saying for two days, look, my distrust of SLED came about because I felt I was being interrogated and I had a natural instinct to lie. And that was my defense mechanism from being a drug addict. So that's when I started lying, when they started accusing me. And the lie was I wasn't at the kennel. The only problem was the last thing he was shown was the video of the first responding officer who showed up was a Colleton County Sheriff who just was responding to a 911 call. And he walks in to a murder scene and Alex tells a bold-faced lie when he wasn't under pressure. He volunteered, I hadn't seen my wife and my son. So now the whole rationale I distrust SLED, I lied because of SLED, I lied because of the paranoia of drugs that he spent two days um, varnishing this jury on was just thrown out of the window. And you could feel the air out of the courtroom. Jim Griffin didn't have any punch left on redirect. I don't think anybody actually was listening to the redirect. We were still processing that Perry Mason moment that Creighton achieved, and we were looking for it. And I had forgotten that Alex had started talking to that the, the Mr. Duncan, the lieutenant, uh, whatever he was, Sergeant Duncan, who came up. I completely forgot about it, and I thought, well, I guess he didn't tell that, uh, you know, that he wasn't at the kennels until he started being questioned in the car, and it was, it dropped the mic. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of people were and a lot of people watching this trial have no idea how real trials go. So they expect like things to happen very quickly and we're getting frustrated with Creighton at times. And he did drag from time to time, but I think it was really important that he got Alex to say a lot of things that I think would have stuck with the jury. And Liz and I always say that Alex kind of tells on himself when he doesn't realize that he's doing it. 
And he did that a lot. Like he used phrases like I got out of there real quick or real fast when talking about leaving uh, the murder scene. Um, They've been watching me like a hawk for years. I wrote a couple of these down because it was just so, I mean, if I'm the jury, those are phrases that are going to stick with me. How about how about the phrase of mistaken instead of lied? You know, oh my god! We all know what a lie is. A lie's a lie. It's not a mistake. Or a lie, a lie of omission, or a lie. <laughs> commission. I a lot of my stuff was commission <laughs> instead of, you know, omission. But he said nobody was around who the dogs didn't know. So it's like, oh my gosh, do you not realize what you're saying here, Alex? Like, right? I think lying is so easy to him, and I didn't realize how. It's it's literally like breathing to him and getting out of something is it's not even he brought the golf cart in play. Did you catch that? The golf cart now is all of it. The golf cart's <laughs> now the five foot two um, vigilante, 12 year old vigilante. Well, we have Mark that. Ball to thank for that. Mark Ball threw that in. Right. Yeah, but <laughs> and he left his wife down there. He took the golf cart. How's she going to get back? Mm -hmm. <laughs> In the, dark. in the dark exactly in the dark and she's not responding so you just leave and you uh, put it in the in yeah. your head that uh they were she was annoyed at him because she wanted him to come down to the kennel so they're annoyed at each other he's now created that i don't know how long did he come down to the kennel for i still don't get it he took the golf cart down mm -hmm. he grabbed the chicken he threw it on top of the doghouse and he basically said look i made a mistake <laughs> coming down here because i'm gonna start sweating mm -hmm. that's what i heard yeah he said i didn't want to go down there um <laughs> he said uh getting ready to do what i didn't want to do yeah and was... then he was like which was sweat <laughs> yeah <laughs> and also you're in the low country, Alex. If you don't want to sweat, like, you just don't exist Move. here. <laughs> Seriously. So, Move. Like, We're sweating now. It's February. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hot outside already. It is hot in June. Like, going to the kennels isn't going to make you sweat any more than just existing. So. I have a question for you, too. Yeah. I know how we felt. We know how our listeners felt because we've been streaming, you know, in, on the trial stream, you know, for two days. How did Buster feel? Give me your thoughts. Who knows? I don't mean to not be compassionate there, but I think after – because guess what? He did testify this week. It seems like it was four weeks ago, but he did testify this week. And I think – I don't want to diagnose him, but like he seems like he's severely disassociated from his body. And he's just – I mean, that photo where Alec is walking by Buster during one of the breaks uh, during Buster's testimony, and he pats him on the, the butt. And, like, could you be any more of the master patting his dog? Like, it just – it felt like he was saying, good boy. Like, good boy. Good job. Well, the reason I asked you guys this was because Buster's sitting there, and either he learns for the first time that my father kept from me for almost a solid two years, that he was with my mother and my brother right. right before they died. And now I fully understand that he waited a solid 42 minutes to call me on the phone mm -hmm. and spoke to Roro and Nene <laughs> and Shishi and whoever else he spoke to. Don't forget Paul Paul. Or, Bust <laughs> or Buster actually knew that Alex was lying because of the Snapchat video long time ago 
and he got on the stand and lied. So Buster's in a real tough spot because he's going to have to now judge his father in a way that's going to be, um, I think we'll start seeing it if he keeps attending the trial. Mandy made a really good point about Buster and Alec. Uh, Mandy, the point you made about the shooting, the roadside thing, where Alec was trying to set it up to look like a murder and for the benefit of his son, but you were like, (laughs) you thought it was a good idea to, now you're murdered too. So your surviving son now has three family members that are murdered. Like Your entire, yeah, there's nothing worse that I could possibly imagine for anybody. Yeah. Why did the shooters leave Alex alone? And Buster. Right. Well, Alex brought Buster to the murder scene. He should have told him, stay in Rock Hill, go to the police department, get yourself safe. I don't know who is doing the shooting. But what I want to know is why they spared Alex. He was there. He was there six minutes before. So obviously they were watching. They knew his car was in the front. Why did they let him live so that he could possibly identify the murders? Why did he get spared? Why did Maggie get killed? I get it that Alex said, well, the boating accident, it's somebody to do with the boating accident, but he couldn't really answer who it was. He tried to say it's the, the, the somebody on the Internet, somebody on the Internet who was harassing Paul, even though they've not produced one text message, one Internet uh, Snapchat, one in, um, Instagram or Facebook message where Paul was threatened and certainly no police reports. But but he was spared. The point that I wanted to make, and I think something that has hit me several times, Liz, I think you said it best. I never came up with a word to describe Buster, but disassociated is perfect. Um, I just don't think, after listening to him on the stand and watching his body language all week, and I think the answer to your question, Eric, of like, what is Buster thinking? Is that like, I don't think it has I don't think it he has it in him and he has not been taught to think logically and critically about things in the way that the rest of us do. I think that Buster has lived his entire life that's like just go along to get along, put your head down and shut up and uh be in this club and everything will be fine and be a Murdoch and everything will be fine. And I think... Well, how does he justify his dad keeping that ultimate fact from him for two years, if he did? He doesn't. He he doesn't think about it. Because I, I was just taken aback when they asked him on the stand, were you scared? Did you take any security precautions after the murders? And he said, like... I don't really feel like carrying a gun around and like my girlfriend's apartment is safe. So he has a girlfriend. I didn't know. And now we never heard about it. No. The, and he also said the worst thing in the world to, to security is he said, I live in a lot of hotels and I talked to a police officer who told me that more people are targeted in hotels when they come out in the parking lot that he said, I stay at my girlfriend's house and she has cameras and I stay at a lot of hotels. Well, we all know that hotels can be some of the unsafest places to stay where somebody can be picked off. It, it, it just made no sense to me how he talked about that he felt he was secure if there's a shooter on the loose. I think I speak for all of us when, like, 
we have all been concerned about our safety gravely for a while now. It's just, this is a scary situation. And what man who's a target, and what man who's a target stays with the loved one who's a girlfriend to put her at risk? That just made no sense to me. We all know why it doesn't make sense. But if Alec hadn't done this, the answer is this was about the boat crash and I have nothing to do with the boat crash. It was Paul they were after. But nobody said that. Nobody said they were after Paul. Like that, if, they're so, if they're so convinced this is some sort of vigilante killing in this fantasy world that they've created. By tattoo. Right. Who's tattoo? Oh, from Fantasy Island. <laughs> Yeah, the five foot two. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh my God, that was this week too. Mandy, how tall are you? Five four. Just so you know, I'm five ten. I'm five four. Liz. Oh, I'm five ten. Liz. Yeah, I'm five ten. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Okay, so who's a five two woman? If it's not a man, is there a woman? It's going to bring on a three oh eight and a shotgun. No, she doesn't. She comes without the the. Gear. She doesn't have those. She has. <laughs> she has to use theirs. It's, <laughs> this is not a BYOG situation. Yeah, <laughs> How does she know when to come? Because according to the the uh, Tutin who testified yesterday, he let out a beautiful gem. He's one of his best friends, and nobody knows until when Paul's going to lay down to go to bed where he's actually going to be. So how did they know on June 7th that Paul was going to be at the kennels at 8.49 at night to be able to do that? They didn't. And Alex would be napping. Right. Right. Napping. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very, very impossible situation to imagine. I mean. Perfect word, impossible. I don't think. Yeah, I five to the whole. I mean, that was such a joke. Um. <laughs> Did you guys see two jurors crying yesterday? Because I'm seeing, like, when I was on the news last night, I was being questioned that, oh, there were jurors crying at Alex in the courtroom. Justin Bamberg told me the jurors, there were a couple of jurors that turned away. But is that propaganda being put out, spin being put out? Did you guys see it? I believe so, because I haven't really read, I should say, you know, usually I read all the Post and Courier and the packet and their take and such. But I do know that there's somebody in that courtroom that likes to put put information in reporters' ears casually as if he is not connected to Dick Harpootlian. So it wouldn't surprise me. Court TV was uh, saying that that was John Grisham yesterday. At least I had. It's not. I had the uh, <laughs> the wisdom to ask whether, like, help me. I don't know. I'm not there. But they reported it as fact. And oh, they did. Yeah, and so they've been wrong about several things in the last couple of weeks. Exactly, they've been wrong about several things. Yeah, and so that one feels very much like it was planted and. Who knows? Because there's no photos of the jury. You have to be in the courtroom. We're not in the courtroom because it's it's we can't do our job from the courtroom, ironically. Uh, so who knows? All we know is nobody that was in the courtroom that I know confirmed it. Saw that. <laughs> nobody confirmed it. Yeah. So, and that I think leads us into another realm of um, Liz and I were talking about this earlier this week. The court of public opinion and how much the defense cares about it. Oh, yeah. I really believe. So with the first couple experts, the first few uh, witnesses that the defense called, 
everybody was just kind of like, this guy, really? This is it? This is this is the best money can buy in South Carolina? The guy who was hired for the boat crash, and you can tell when you look at this guy's resume that he, it, the company that he works for is called Accident Something. A double homicide is not an accident. <laughs> it's not. Um, a double murder is not an accident. He specialized in accident reconstruction. And he had no, he had no knowledge, no training in ballistics. He had no training in firearms. Like, wait a minute. He had life experiences. He said he used the word life experience. Oh, he shot at a car in a junkyard or something at one point. He said that he bought like twenty. He grabbed twenty <laughs> doors from a, a junkyard and then shot at them. And and the <laughs> prosecution's like, oh, in a lab environment, like <laughs> a controlled environment. He's like, no, in my, my office, at my office. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, th this uh, that made me question, are they focused more in the court of a public opinion than they are in the courtroom? Because I swear to God, and I would love somebody to look into this who knows more than I do about this, but I swear to God, there's something going on with bots on Twitter. And 100%. Bots on Twitter who are, because they... All of a the sudden, there's all of these accounts that will say the kind of the same thing about something, but pro-defense wise, whether it is like today it was like Creighton sucks. Um, the other day it was Judge Newman sucks. And they like go away and come at the same time, I swear. And I know I sound crazy, but PR companies do hire bots as a way to sway public opinion. And... You definitely do not sound crazy, by the way. Thank you, but because that's—I mean, it's—it's it's accurate, and it's—it's—if I mean, you're noting it, and I see it. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, but speaking of that, I mean, we can't underestimate the power that Dick and Jim have to sway the media and to say thing to get somebody to say to Court TV that there was two crying jurors. That word gets out and that means a lot. And I mean, the they've done a great job, I will say, and it's crazy, but I feel like I'm constantly like... Other than me, name another lawyer in South Carolina who has been out there consistently, and I'm not toting my own horn, but just pushing that I believe the prosecution has done a pretty damn good job with the mess that they were handed. Name one other lawyer that you've seen were heard out there on TV consistently. I mean, I'm battling everybody. I wish that I wish that they would have. Um, I, and I think this has to do with who they ask. Like, I wish that they would have Mandy Powers Norrell and uh, Sarah Ford, both of those lawyers, South Carolina. I was on with them. Uh, yeah, what well, that was a uh, podcast. Podcast. Yeah, yeah, that was surviving, sur surviving the survivor about the Holocaust. He has a Holocaust surviving mother, but he's a crime guy. He oh, used wow. to work for Fox News. Oh, and cool. so we were on last week. Interesting. He's a really good guy. Yeah, Mandy and uh, I'd like to get each one of them because I got to know Sarah Ford through the Bowen Turner case. And I've gotten to know Mandy through various things in the last couple of years. They're both just brilliant attorneys and they're... I'm thankful for just like your um, input on Twitter and just... Telling people like, hey, this is actually how the laws work. And hey, this is what's going on in South Carolina. But the the other South Carolina attorneys that I've seen, and every single time, 
you read something that's like, that's absurd. Why would they say that? You look up the name and or you text somebody and say, does this guy friends with Dick Harpootlian? And they always are. They're, all these people are in the same circles and they're connected to people in the media. And that's what makes – and it, it, it does work to a certain extent. And I started this scary question with myself today was like, what if the three of us weren't in this? Where would public opinion be at this point? I don't know who, you know, where would the case be without you, Mandy, you know, finding the initial uh, $500,000 Satterfield and then you, Liz and Mandy together, you know, taking on that local uh, 14th Judicial Circuit and writing articles at the Island Packet. And then then later when you guys went to Fitz News and now then the MMP, where would you guys be? Um, where, I mean, where would everybody be? Yeah, I don't know. There would be no story. Who, who, who's left? John Monk and, and traditional journalists? You guys were the gonzo journalists who went out on a high wire and wrote some pretty amazing things that all tr- proved true. I think the pressure of, and I, I don't know why journalists don't understand this, or at least I'm not saying they don't understand it. I don't know why in this state, it's so much more important to – it's almost like a, so, a caste system or something with your sources. Like it's more important to have sources that are considered like powerful than it is to call those out in power. And I think after seeing Alec up on the stand these last two days, I can fully see and understand how they have had so much power in the 14th Circuit, in the Low Country – for so long, because that is a personality that would wear you out. And for law enforcement officers who are making, like we've said this before, who are making $50,000 maybe uh, for government officials, things like that, DNR officers, these people are making a whole lot of money. And to come up against somebody like Alec, who he's just going to talk you into agreeing with him to get him to go away. And I think that that's where I see people like Dick Harpootian and his sort of control of the media here, it's sort of the same thing. Like I think there's some there's some there's some sort of cachet in being friends with the Murdochs down here. And I think it's the same thing in Columbia. It's the same thing in Charleston with having these powerful sources. So then the reporter becomes afraid to challenge them in the same way that the law enforcement officer is afraid to challenge the Murdochs and not be escorted around at a murder scene. Uh, so that's I think that's how it happens. I think that the journalists who work in the state don't even realize it sometimes that they are absolutely being controlled. And we have nothing. We have nothing for these people. Dick Harpootlian is not going to call me up. He's not going to put anything in my ear because he knows that I'm going to question it. He knows I want to check it. He knows that I'm going to put context to it. I just don't. So that's where I think the failing of journalists is in the state. I know people hate when we talk about journalists, like like as if we're this is some sort of... Who are also underpaid. Yeah, who are also underpaid. Exactly. Good point. It's like we're being petty. It's not. We're talking about the system and, and how important it is that you have journalists who can call it out. Uh, and I don't think we have that. Right. It's like when Eric talks about the lawyers that are bad in his industry, like it's mm-hmm. it's disappointing to us when our people in our profession don't live up to the standards that we do. And when you find out that they cut corners and just don't care. I think the the overall thing that I'm 
keep taking, having to take a step back because I, I just, we both know so much. We all know so much. And it's, it's a, too much. It's too much. And it's overwhelming at times and it's very, very frustrating. Um, but. <laughs> Creighton also knew too much. That was a problem with his cross examination. It's so hard to refine it to 20 topics when there was so much ground to cover. And I finally think he figured it out to slim it down. And when he slimmed it down and went to that timeline, that was the most effective cross-examination that he could have done. So we'll be right back. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. It has done wonders for our seasonal allergies. We recently started feeling the effects of spring. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, sinus congestion, and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have any allergies? It is time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. I was thinking about this when we were talking about journalists not doing their job and the power of Dick Herpulian. The other day, I had, you know, one of my regular tweets calling Dick out on his crap. And somebody responded and said, like, you obviously don't know Dick Herpulian. You would want this guy in your circle. You would want this guy in your circles or something like that. Was that Kathleen Parker? Did she? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, maybe. I, but like, seriously, that that is what the problem is here. It is all these people that ignore bad human behavior because they want these people in their power circles. Like, that's why Alex Murdoch became Alex Murdoch. And I just want to scream it from the rooftops. Like, oh, you don't have to deal. I don't want, I do not want Dick Harputlian in my circle. If no matter how powerful that makes me, no matter how rich that makes me, I don't care. I, I think that that's a bad circle to be in. And if other people are going to try to wiggle their way in there and forget all of their morals and values just so they can be in his circle or his whatever, that is pathetic. And like, that's the problem here. Now, I will I will only add 
I am disappointed in some of his statements that he's made in the trial, and I've tweeted about that. I did not like him saying it was his honor. I didn't like baked beans. I didn't like Special Agent Worley. And I certainly didn't like the pointing of a gun because as a gun owner and in and, and horrific gun things, to minimize and laugh about pointing a gun at, at people and then pointing at and saying tempting, it, it, it really is a problem. However, I will commend him for a 74-year-old man to do a five-week trial like this, plus all the prep. Um, it's not the hardest job in the world. People who work physically and do a lot of harder things, doctors and, and nurses, the nurses who have to work 20-hour shifts during COVID is much harder. But the guy is slinging it, and I give him the props for that. I give Jim Griffin his props because he's tired. You could see it. The guy, he's doing a lot of research, reading a lot of cases. He's doing a lot of cross-examination prep that takes a lot of thought. Um, the mistake I see on the defense side is, and we've been I said it on national TV because she's a friend of mine, they should have utilized Maggie Fox very early in this trial. She is uh, have a, she's credentialed. She's had trial experience. She's good on her feet. And you've talked about this, Mandy, your disappointment of the lack of diversity on both sides of the aisle, not just on the defense side. You've said that there should be more women, more diversity on the other side of the aisle, the prosecution. Um, so that's my comment. I'm disappointed in what Dick has done. And I, I really do believe that Jim believed that Alex is innocent. I'm not so sure about Dick. Do you think that now, though? Do you think that after seeing what Crate. No, I saw Jim. I saw Jim looking at like, oh, my goodness, what did I do? Like, what's this going to do for me if he really is found guilty? I don't think Dick Harpootlian will care one second if Alex is found guilty and what it would do to his reputation. He's going to walk out. He'll go to the state house. He'll call his political people on the phone. He'll be right back in the swing of things. But I think for a guy like Jim Griffin, it could be. um He's questioning how hard I fought, how hard should I continue to fight? I want to say something about Maggie Fox, too, because I, I agree with you, Eric, and she should have been used more. But I think that speaks to what Mandy was saying and what we were saying about journalism is that in order to compete in this state, I think that you have to, obviously, you know this, like you have to be in that circle. You have to. And that's what makes Dick effective in people's eyes and what makes him powerful is his access to uh, people on the higher levels of government or whatever, uh, his relationships. That's what people are paying for, his relationships. I think that the me – Maggie Fox is measured. She is clean. Like her, her – the way she speaks is clean. It's not dramatic. It's focused. And I think that so much value is put on the type of trial lawyers who – are more audacious and like Jim can overconfident, you know, just yeah, overcome the swagger, like the uh, just this sort of bombastic, yeah, like ugh. yeah, and that's what made Buster Murdoch, the OG Buster Murdoch, so famous in the state was because of the theatrics, it was because of that control of the jury and the the drama, and so I think when 
Dick and Jim and maybe even like Alan Wilson and Creighton and all them, when they look at who, what kind of energy you need in the room, they're not looking to a Maggie Fox or a Savannah Good. They put them in charge of like that. It's like the lady jobs. Like you can do the the calmer ones. We need to be up there for the swagger. And I don't think they're wrong. And that's what makes me so sad is that I think that that's just juries probably are receptive to. Yeah. I mean, Maggie's two witnesses were were 10 minute witnesses. Yeah. yeah. That girl can that girl can handle a whole day. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's that good. Well, and I mean. But I think that it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I minored in sociology and that was always like my nerd passion. I love sociology. I love like learning how people interact with each other and how people perceive everybody perceives things differently because of their backgrounds and because of their environments. Right. I think it's interesting that the world is kind of turning now that it is not controlled by, uh, sorry, Eric, older white men, all older white men. I think that now that more voices are being, integrated into mainstream and into all into Hollywood and into all these other things that like I think that like I was sitting there this week thinking as Maggie Fox was talking that I just liked her more and so I listened to her more I literally have to force myself to sit there and listen to Dick Harpootlian and I get text messages from many of my friends who feel the exact same way because our skin crawls when we hear the man. Like, he reminds us of so many old, gross bosses who we've had in the past who just suck and they're terrible and it's just, and have made you feel icky and disgusting. And, but I imagine that, like, there's probably jurors who have that same feeling. And so... But what's going to happen if, God forbid, not God forbid, what's going to happen? Yeah, God forbid, because he'll get away with murder. What would happen if there's a not guilty verdict? And then Dick's going to be absolutely applauded. They're going to write books about him, a 74-year-old Goliath. What's going to happen if there's a hung jury? What are you going to say, Mandy? He didn't have that hard a job to prove because they already mucked up the investigation to begin with because Alex was on a totally different scale than anybody else would as far as the threshold of evidence against him. Well, mucking it up. I mean, I don't think that any, I don't, I don't feel strongly about the crime, the crime scene as probably I should. Either do I. I don't think, I don't think if you brought Cyril Wecht or Henry Lee or the world famous coroners or accident people to come in, I don't think any more blood or footprint evidence or anything would have led any different spot than to Alex Murdoch. I think it's been a fool's gold defense would saying, well, if you would have done a better job, you would have found uh, the Sugar Hill gang killed um, uh, uh, Paul and, and Maggie. No, this case was never a crime scene scientific case. I mean, it, uh, 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 it was a technology case. It was Alex lying. This is a case about Alex Murdoch. It wasn't about a better crime scene. So I don't like them. I think it goes back to what you said, though, Eric, on the phone earlier. If you, if this jury at this point is going to acquit Alec, or you know, if, if it's going to end up to be a hung jury, there's nothing in the world that could convince them that Alec did this. Then, like there, there isn't. There's no more. Like this, this is. It's all on the table at this point, and it's going to come down to whether this is a jury that can be, um, that can see itself. I guess, convicting a Murdoch. I think what Mandy is saying is 
we have two systems of justice, and she keeps saying it, and she's right. For any other person, the bar, we all could high jump over it. It would be easy to say. It would have been a three-day trial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they met They met their burden. The guy's guilty. But because it's Alex Murdoch, what Mandy's saying is it's an eight-foot-six high jump bar. And you're saying, Liz, well, this jury wants video of him doing it. They want Mandy and Liz to be witnesses to him doing it. They want the gun. They want the bullets, the date the gun was purchased. And maybe then they will say guilty. But circumstantial evidence cases, guys, you're going to hear the law charge is no different than direct evidence. It's not a lesser piece of evidence. It's the same piece of evidence as direct evidence. But there is direct evidence in this case. And it goes back to it's the video. It's the that's direct evidence. That's the GMC shows exactly where you were like. I don't know, you know, and right. People act like people act like every single murder is like a Scooby-Doo case where like there are footprints leading up to the murder and then like everything just perfectly comes together and it's just, oh, and, and the guy pulls off his cover. Like that's not what happens in real life. It's just not that. Except this comes close, don't you think? This is kind of scooby doo ish this is kind of stupid. Yeah, it's kind of, it's very Scooby-Doo, um, especially with all the nicknames that we've heard recently. Oh, my God. Ro-Ro. <laughs> I think there's a lot of confusion about Papa. You're, I'm calling you May-May. No. It's better than Man-Man. I think Liz is Liz-Liz. You're May-May and she's Lily. You're going to be Lily, Liz. No, I'm good. I, I think <laughs> E-E. The nickname thing, I mean, I don't think I've loved Creighton more than when he pointed out, like, Papa, huh? You never... Where, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, well, Paul I, I don't is how he had the name problem. saved into his phone. So legitimately, that is what he called. He calls. I've spoken with people who are friends with Alec. Yes, he has those kinds of nicknames for them. But the idea of putting on this affect with the jury and I, God help me, did they hire a drama coach? Like what? Yes. Yes. Really? Uh, absolutely. They hired somebody to absolutely educate him discuss with him from a psychology standpoint on what to portray, when to look, when to cry. And then they have lawyers to act like Creighton and then act like Jim Griffin. Obviously, Jim acts as Jim, but they have different people who are going to cross-examine. Some that are going to be very harsh and accusatory, other that are going to be very nice to get you to say things that you don't. This was a Broadway play, folks. When do you think they decided to have, because right up until the end, one of their pretrial motions that they filed, they were sort of downplaying this significance of the video. It seemed like they were trying to get, do you guys remember this when they brought up the video of Alex's voice? Like, it seemed like going into this trial, like the video, they were still going to assert that he was never down by the kennels. And I think it, it seemed like, all of a sudden, mid like in the middle or as the trial's happening, we're starting to see like, oh, wow, they're not going to fight this. But then when, when did they make the decision that let's tell them that you were there and now let's, let's put all the pieces, like let's re... It's almost like a movie that starts in the middle of the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's the middle of the story and then it, it goes right back to the middle and then it ends like a Pulp Fiction or a... Jim did it about a week ago when he made a statement. He said Alex may have made a mistake when he said he wasn't at the kennels. He used the word mistake. 
in the middle. It's some mistake. Am I going to forget the last time I see Renee? We've been married 35 years. Am I going to see the, forget the last time that I spoke and laid eyes on Renee and my son Davis? The answer is no. Clearly no. How do you guys think, uh, because he did retrofit his entire story now to the evidence that's been presented into the testimony, and the parts that didn't have evidence or testimony to support, those are the parts he can't remember. And the video itself obviously is not bringing video back to his jail cell at night to watch, so he couldn't really study that. So the boohooing stopped every time so that he could focus on the video and, and really upload that to his big robot head. Uh, how do you guys think that that plays with the jury when he's like referring to the records. Like it seems to me that would be like a big red flag, but I'm telling you now that the story is, well, according to the records, I was at the house at that time. And according to the records, I was driving here at that time. Like I, I don't know how they can sit on that as, or accept that. It's not believable. But he committed to it. I think, and several of my friends pointed this out, they were, like, baffled by how he described Maggie and Paul. Yeah, And how he couldn't fake that because it's just so robotic. Like he's not capable of something. He's not capable of describing, like, out of love and affection in the way that, like, the rest of us are and talking about another human being. I love Liz because she's funny. Oh, my God, she makes me laugh so hard and blah, blah, blah. And I, she's caring and empathetic and blah, blah, blah. Instead, it's like Maggie, Maggie was a girl. Maggie is a girl. That was like one of the first. <laughs> you saw his his head was like, like the, it was looping. He was searching for what he was going to say. Then it looped again. Then yeah, he's like Googling his own brain. Like, what? how do you describe yes. a woman? <laughs> she is my wife. <laughs> she a girly girl. Uh, you you know. should see her address. Uh, but she was a boy mom. It's just like very basic things that the rest of the whole world knows about Mac. <laughs> he didn't say she's the love of my life. I've like, I feel like I lost a limb. You know, none of that. Right. Like she was. I'm going to say something crazy though. I think people can kill people and still love them later. Of course. No, yes. Yeah, totally. I, I like I still I still think he loves Paul. Yeah. And maybe there was a point that it was a mercy killing like you said to me earlier this week, Liz, and and I think he loves Maggie in a way. Maybe he wasn't a great husband. We don't know what happened inside the four walls if he was always a good husband or he was you know, dictatorial or he was abusive or he was, you know, not trustworthy and, you know, but I still think there was love there in a way, not the normal love that you, Mandy, have for David or I have for Renee or, but, you know, he's a, he's a complicated man, man. He really is a complicated man. He's far better at this than I give him credit for. I'll say that. Like when people talk about him being smart, I'm always like, oh, I don't think you knew him, but now I get it. I totally get it. Right. And I think, like, Eric, to what you said about, I was convinced today on the stand as somebody who has been in an emotionally abusive relationship that Alex was emotionally abusive to Maggie. And I was kind of taken aback and kind of out of air a lot of times listening to him. And 
understanding how hard it would have been to be in a relationship with this man for so long because he, I mean, the gaslighting over and over, you're misunderstanding this. Um, at one point he said, Creighton, I know this is frustrating you, but, and it's like, they know how to push your buttons in ways that no, in ways that nobody else can and does. And he is, he's masterful of it. I will have to, I did not give him enough credit for his level of manipulation. I had no idea. Can't you see Maggie in the kitchen trying to talk to him about something that, you know, is important to her that about her feelings and the phone rings and he just walks away and starts talking in the phone and gets in his car and drives away and leaves her sitting there. Like, I thought we were having this discussion. Can't you just see that happening? Or like Maggie, you're imagining that you that you, there's no money in the bank account. Like no, I was there. That's yeah. your fault. Or like, I mean, I just can't imagine what was going on, especially as he was under all these all this pressure and apparently taking enough pills to kill an elephant. Yeah, seriously, what the heck? That, that I told Creighton that he should have gotten four Tylenol bottles of 100 pills each and dumped them on the table and said, "Here's a glass of water." Show us how you take 400 pills a day of opioids and that you live. He couldn't even say how many pills he took. And that I think I find that so strange. I'm obviously I'm not an addict. I don't know. What if there's an addict on the jury, guys? Where where does this come down? A recovering addict, excuse me. I think the question should be more if like how many people in the jury have narcissists in their lives and can yeah. understand it. Seriously. Because I think that that's a huge, huge part of all of this. Because if you if you can understand narcissism, then you can see right through everything that Alex did today and yesterday. But I do. But I do. I will say, and I don't know whether it was practice or rehearsed, but he did talk about from a drug addict standpoint. Not. I'm not saying he's capital A D, capital A. I'm not saying. D. I'm not saying capital A drug addict. I'm saying somebody who, you know, drugs was on a lot of their mind every day. And, you know, he he was able to convey competently and convincingly to me. Your thoughts? To me, it felt like he read a book on it or a pamphlet. I, I know I'm not saying I know that obviously there's evidence of his addiction in the past, but I I don't know. I I, I don't know. It didn't feel real to me. I just think it doesn't really matter. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of juries will see like drugs in most of society. If you're addicted to drugs means that like you're kind of unhinged and you do not have control of your life. And he was saying himself that he was making bad decisions because he was on the drugs and he was under all this pressure and blah, blah, blah. I think it makes him – I think there was a, a few moments where he might have gotten a little sympathy, but then he kind of ruined those. How does opioids make you um, – he said manic. Uh, yeah, he I don't said, know. And paranoid of sled. Well, I got paranoid, <laughs> but he said it gave him energy and made him feel virile and he could accomplish a lot and, you know, hyperactive. I've never heard that. Is it – have you guys read about it? Liz, you read about everything. What do you think? I do. I have never, I mean, maybe. I, I, I mean, I watched Nurse Jackie. I don't know. <laughs> like, I really don't have any personal experience with drug addiction. Thank God. Um, so I don't know. But um, 
I will say, I mean, I love I love Nurse Jackie. I love Edie Falco. Yeah, that was a great show. Yeah, I mean, she certainly showed up for her shifts. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. Like, <laughs> she she definitely she was able to work. I, I don't know. Maybe I've, it all fell apart eventually, though. It did, right? And you, yeah, as it always sure. does. Like, as somebody who lies, and in my friends who have dealt with addicts in their lives have told me that like that show is probably the the closest to reality when it comes to addicts and how they act and how they manipulate everybody around and yeah they they make they convince you that everything's okay but it's obviously not and that's what was going on in Alex's life we'll be right back so Mark Tinsley's a liar Michelle's a liar Blanca's a liar. Jeannie Seconder's a liar. Sled's a liar. Chris Wilson was close to lying. He was mistaken. And Alex is a drug addict, a liar, and a thief. And I've told you that now. And Sled's a liar. And I tell yeah. you that I'm a liar. I'm a drug addict, a thief. The media, too. Me. Yeah, media is lying. And you're media. Media lies. So now you're supposed to believe me because I come into court yesterday and for the first time, I acknowledge that I lied about the kennel. The most important fact in this case, I lied about it for almost a solid two years. And after having pled not guilty on every single financial crime charge, and I've been clean for 531 days, so my head is no longer screwed up. Because of drugs, I'm clean. I've been clean for 531 days. But I have pled not guilty to every financial crime, including my lawyers getting in the court saying there's a defense to the Satterfield case. I'm coming into court now and I'm going to admit I stole everybody's money. So you have to believe me. I didn't kill my wife. And you know what word he never said? Two words that he never said. Never apologize, never use the word, I apologize to my clients, the people that trusted me. And the other word he never said is, I am innocent. He said, I would never intentionally shoot my wife and my son. I would never hurt them, was always the answer. He said the word hurt a lot, which was very weird. He, he never did. said the word innocent. The word hurt is interesting. I would have screamed. I would have screamed from the witness stand, I am innocent. I did not do this. And find the real right. killers. Yeah. I mean, can he be charged with obstruction of justice for, for misleading sled for this long? I mean, it feels, it feels he like he should in lying to a police officer. And charge him for all, the, all of the costs of them investigating in the grand jury indicting on these financial crime cases. And don't give me the bullshit. I wanted to meet with you guys for the last seven months, but you wouldn't. Guess what? His lawyers could have met with him. And when Jim Griffin went on uh, the HBO special in November, he knew then that it was false. He could have. Did he? Did he know his statement that Alex was not? I don't know when that was filmed um, because this is the thing with Alec and his attorneys. They shift it. So everything is all about when the evidence comes in otherwise, right? Right. They don't do anything before. And 
<laughs> they don't. Yeah, it's always it's always oh, so it's like the roadside shooting. Oh, your ghost found out I was lying. So here's the actual here's the actual story. And then it's also a lie, by the way, in my opinion. For some reason, Dick, Jim, and Illich think that the solution to the bigger to the bigger crime, like the problem is the bigger crime, like the murder, is to admit to his smaller crime. So the shooting happens, the roadside alleged shooting happens. He admits to uh, you know, this smaller crime, but then it gets him in trouble. And then with the Satterfield thing, he wants to get out of jail and he wasn't showing enough contrition for the judge. So I'll, I will offer a confession of judgment. I will confess to that crime because it's it's a smaller crime. I can admit to the smaller crime, right? It's it's all str- it's strategic admission. So this is another strategic admission that we're seeing from him, which is it, it's almost like a, a pamphlet. Like it's a lie, and then it unfolds, and it can fold onto itself again. It's it, you just you can't keep up, and and I think that's the point. Well, well, what about Mark Tinsley? Let let's talk about Zero Dark Tinsley. Where did that come from that he said the conversation that Mark said happened at the trial lawyers convention? Not that some of it didn't happen. The conversation never happened. Michelle Smith, I never brought a blue coat in or a tarp. And I never went to her and said 30 to 40 minutes. What about a prosecutor saying that they thought they planted evidence on Greg Alexander? Like you, you're saying like a really serious right. thing right now, which means that we can have no trust in SLED, no trust in any part of this system because two people who are prosecutors are saying that SLED planted evidence on somebody or manufactured evidence. That's huge. That's like, I mean, what are you accusing them of from the stand? But going back to Mark, Alec is the demonic Mark Tinsley because Mark Tinsley could do the same thing from the stand, right? He could he was basically uh playing pin pinball with uh Phil Barber from the stand. He controlled that. I mean, he even I even think he said, I know this is frustrating for you. I'm not giving you the answer I want. Alec was doing the same thing skillfully the way Mark was. But the problem is, is that Alec was doing it out of narcissism, not out of uh brilliance or uh, out of just being an intelligent man and, and being able to play chess with the, without the pieces. Alec can play chess too, but he's, he's, uh, it's all, it's all self-serving. It's all uh, for, for evil purposes. I mean, it's to cover, it's to cover a murder. It's to cover crime. Yeah. And, and I want to say that if he did it. <laughs> yeah. If he did it. Um, and, and I want to say that like, I, I keep going back to this, but I think that him, the fact that he, this guy has the gall to go in front of the jury and go in, go in front of the world and say, I know you just heard all these people, but they're all lying. And, oh, yeah, I was lying to you. I lied about the financial crimes. I lied to everyone I love, basically. I lied here. I lied there. I lied everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I'm not lying right now. <laughs> right, but not now. And you should believe me. That just shows how he feels that he's better than everybody else. And he feels like he's smarter than everybody else. And that makes me so angry. So if I, if, if you and I are dating and I take you to a steak restaurant and I'm going to buy you this big steak and you take one bite of that $50 steak and it tastes rotten, you're not going to eat the rest of the steak. You're going to send it back and say, I don't want it. Well, that's the same way I feel that this jury's going to say you lied about the most important fact in this case that caused investigators and police and so- solicitors to have to waste years, but you lied to your son. 
more importantly about this. I, I don't see a jury getting over that. Um, I'll tell you this. I got to get I got to get props to Mandy. Um, she made a call at one oh like one forty. I sure hope that Creighton can run out the clock and let the jury go home with Alex getting off the stand and not having new witnesses. Because I'm telling you, that's going to sink in and sear in them over the weekend. I was very grateful that there wasn't two more, you know, defense witnesses. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I think that like, I think that that was super important that, um, and, and of course at times in, I get annoyed with people that have just heard of this case yesterday and they're like, he's only talking about his finances. This is a murder case. Blah, 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 blah. Right. That's so for annoying. the rest of us, I could sit there and listen because I've been waiting for this guy to be on the stand and to be cornered for years now. So very good point. I wanted him to be there forever. Not really because I'm sick of hearing him, but I think that I think it was very strategic the way that Creighton stretched it out all day. And I think that I mean, I agree. Going back to that, that show I watched on OJ, the OJ lawyers were very, very big on how they finished the week. And they would make comments to, like, you know, what the jury's going to go home with. They're going to hear that. They're going to think about that all weekend. And that was really big to each when other. When did he put the gloves on since you and I had this little debate offline? He put the glove on at the trial or was that pre-trial? That was trial. Um, but it wasn't when he was, he wasn't on the stand. How did you do it? How did you do it without putting him on? Was you sure he wasn't on the stand? I think you got to be on the stand. No, he was standing at the table. Someone else was on the stand and his attorney got the idea that let's try the gloves on. Let's see if we can. Kind of like with the measuring tape of Alec, like it's a right. crawl, like a, Yeah. Right. Why don't we stand up? And the um, uh, Marsha Clark did not want him to try on the gloves. Marsha was like, I don't want that moment. I don't want it. No. The blood makes leather dry and shrink. And then do you remember his fingers? He put it on like you put on like a baseball glove. Yes. He and he had plastic remember gloves on underneath you know, because, to protect around. the evidence. So it was, he was like, yes. me, I I was five years old. old I was in kindergarten, and I remember when the jury was so in the. When did you when, start yeah, when watching I was five that years trial? Old, I, my mom and I used to watch true crime all the time. Oh my uh, god! <laughs> but oh yeah, my god. Uh, I had a point about that. But yeah, what what the jury's walked into for the weekend is a big deal. And the other thing that I want to want to mention before we wrap up here today is the. I was really, really upset and bothered by the way that he talked about Paul, his son. And it's it's oh, like, yeah. oh. Eric, you're a parent and I am not, but I was raised by parents and my parents can list all my flaws immediately. They can, they can tell you everything that's wrong with me. And they would tell anybody like, oh, Mandy's messy, man. Mandy has time management problems. Mandy, blah, blah, blah. Um, the fact that he stood up there and said, if anybody says anything negative about my son, Paul, and that means that they have an ulterior motive. That is the problem. That is the problem with the way that he raised Paul. He raised Paul to pretend like he was perfect and 
anything that he heard about his son besides perfection, he just ignored the problem. And like, I cannot get past, and I hope that parents are hearing that and understanding that, how big of a problem that is when you just ignore, 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 and that's what happened with this family. So it looks like we're going into uh, hopefully what might be the last week of trial. Uh, Eric, can you just real quickly just tell us, it's so if the state brings up, they're just going to bring in rebuttal witnesses. Is that what it's called? It's not like they get to retry the case or anything, right? They can bring in witnesses to, to address what the defense puts on. Creighton will bring on specific witnesses to refute assertions that were made during the defense case, correct? For, for items and matters that he thinks that they did score blood on, that they actually made a good point that could cause reasonable doubt. His job is to uh, eliminate what could be considered reasonable doubt. And he gets the last word on that. And then when we uh, broke today, you heard Dick whining about closing arguments. He wanted to limit the amount of time. The judge said, nope, I don't believe in limiting the amount of time. And then Dick said, look, this is a four-week trial. Jim Griffin and I would like to break up the closing argument into two separate parts. The judge said, no, that's against the law. I'm not going to do that. One party's going to do it, which tells me Jim Griffin is going to do the closing argument if it's only going to be one person. Creighton, I believe, will do the uh, major um, opening and maybe somebody else will do the rebuttal or maybe Creighton does both. But the key thing in the next week that you're going to, the battle is going to be the jury charges. And you heard the judge start to make reference to that. The judge has his own set of jury charges, but Dick and Jim are going to submit about 100 separate jury charges that are written in a way that are favorable to the defendant. The prosecution's got 100 charges that are written in a certain way that are more favorable to the prosecution. And they'll have what's known as called a charging conference. And I'm hopeful that that'll be done on TV, that we'll be able to see it. Um, because it's very, very interesting because the judge is going to tell these jurors when he reads them the law before the closing arguments, um, you must follow these jury charges. You must. I am in charge of the law. You are in charge of the facts. And after the closing arguments are done, he gives the jury all the evidence. They get 742 pieces of evidence to take back in that jury room. Now, if they have any questions about testimony, they come back in the courtroom and they ask the court, can you reread Alex's testimony on the kennel when I admitted to the uh, that when he admitted that he lied about the kennel? They can't take that transcript back. It's read to them. So if you were to ask me, how long is this going to go? I think we have another, believe it or not, another solid week before the case gets to the jury. And then the deliberations could be as little as a day or could be five days. And then the plea and mitigation, if he's convicted, is going to be the most interesting thing in the world because these guys got to start preparing for it. The government has to prepare if he's convicted and the defense has to prepare. And that means 
bringing all the victims in. The state's going to bring all the victims in, all the financial victims in. And we're going to get to speak, the Satterfields and the Plylers and Eric Bland. Why would they get to speak about what sentence a murderer should get? Because they are a victim that came in under... Oh, that's wild. I feel like it should just, oh, honestly wow. just feel like it should be people speaking on behalf of Paul and Maggie. But it, it yeah. depends on what Craig decides to do. Now, Dick and Jim, they have to bring in a lot of people who are going to speak about Alex. And Alex has to well, do Well, that's the- going to be a real who's who of- I can't wait. Right. But Alex has to do the most unbelievable high wire act because he's trying to get mercy from the judge. He doesn't want a life sentence. You get 32 life. It could be as low as 30 or life. And he's going to want to have to say, Judge, I've made so many bad decisions in my life, but I didn't murder him. But I can see how I did things that could lead somebody to conclude to it, but I didn't murder him. He's got to walk that fine line. So to me, the next week and a half, two weeks is the most interesting time of the trial for a lawyer like me. I did want to talk about, uh, just say really quickly that our hearts are with the Beach family. It's been four years since the boat crash, which is, like we said, the ground zero of this murder case, as it turns out. Um, and our hearts are with everyone, uh, the Cook family and the Altmans and the Dowdies, uh, to all of them. and Or the Cook, I should say the Cook families. There's two Cook families. Yeah, two of them. I feel really yeah. good for the Beaches, Hal. They were described in this trial by Dawes Cook and by Alex. Mm-hmm. They don't have any claims against the Murdoffs. I mean, it was bad. Bad parenting is a claim. We're not. We weren't worried about claims from the uh, against uh, the Murdoffs at all. I mean, that the poor Beach family. How much more do they have to go through? Well, to have this case and all these new people that are are interested in it and becoming introduced to it, it's it's a whole new like wave. They have to go through waves, right? Like, yeah. And the um, and just one more thing I want to say: the way that a lot of these men on the stand dance around talking about Mallory's name and what happened, they do not say Mount. They do not say. The tragic boat crash where Mallory Beach was killed. They say, they say the boat accident or the boat yeah. crash, and it just in the way that they describe what happened within the Hampton community is just so wrong because the Hampton community would not have been angry at the Murdochs if they acted appropriately after. After what happened, if they said, we are so sorry, no. What they did was cover it up, and what they did was conspire, and what they did, what Alex did, was go around the hospital flashing his badge, trying to uh, convince everybody that it wasn't Paul. And again, that's bad parenting, and that's terrible. But I, I hate that the world is hearing about this boat crash in a way that's like, Jim is trying to make it look like the Murdochs should be sympathetic characters in the boat crash. And that is not at all what happened. Yes. I thought it was the most, one of the most vulgar things I've seen in this trial, believe it or not, was the him with the badge out of his side pocket like he was some kind of cop in the hospital. It was grotesque. It just was grotesque. His badge that he used to get a table to IHOP one time. That was my fun fact of the week. Now, what, what did you just say? <laughs> he- 
What did you just say? He used his badge to get a table at IHOP at one point in Columbia. How did you find that out? I got people in the pancake industry. You have a, you have a source in the in the <laughs> constant in the host department at IHOP. We got sources everywhere. I got bartender sources. I have heard stories about these people for what, years. What did he flash it? Did he... He, he he literally flashed it and said, "Get me a table." And what do they do? They yank people who are there for their Rudy Tootie fresh and fruity to. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, there's... Get you and your pancakes out of here. Elliot Murdoch is here. Celebrity here. <laughs> He's got a badge. Take your pancakes elsewhere. It's stupid. Yeah, but well, yeah, that's my fun fact of the week. And yeah. Goodbye, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Five yeah, stars. five stars, everybody. Cups down. Cups down. Cups down. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. (laughs) 